If you love writing as much as you love beer, this is the episode for you. My guest, David Nilsson, conjures up such solid, engaging imagery in his stories. He writes for publications that include Pellicle and Good Beer Hunting. He leads tastings, and he hosts his own podcast, Bean to Barstool, which is all about craft beer and bean to bar chocolate. David takes you to places and mindsets with his writing and interviews, and introduces you to fascinating people. And now you get to meet him. I'm your host, Will Sis, and this is It Starts With Beer. One, two, three, four. This episode is brought to you by Brassworks Brewing, making a wide variety of beer in Waterbury, Connecticut. We're talking a juicy, fouled-up New England IPA, crisp and clean Edison Light, a vibrant blood orange farmhouse, and my favorite, rich and chocolatey Abel Porter. You'll find their cans in package stores, and you can enjoy the beer indoors and out at their tap room. For more information, Go to BrassWorksBrewing.com. You can listen to previous episodes of It Starts With Beer at BeerSnobRights.com slash podcast and wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Both are at BeerSnobRights. Let's start this episode with David's voice, reading from an article of his about his first experience with a very special beer. Back at the campground, I opened my first two-hearted ale. It was bitter but clean, bracing like the frigid water of the river on my bare feet. There were notes of the forest, the wind through the high pines and lonely birches clinging to the sandy soil, and bright citrus notes, and more I couldn't yet identify. It got its hook deep in my heart on that trip, and I still feel the tug. Fantastic work, David. Thank you so much, and thanks for being on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Will. I really feel a sense of place and a sense of connection to the people in the work that I read from you. Now, that was from your Pellicle article about Two Hearted, uh, uh, talking about uh, Bell's iconic IPA. Is there Anything about this story that still lingers with you and the experience of researching it that that uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this was a really personal article for me to write because Bell's Two-Hearted Ale was one of my very first craft beers, one of the first beers I had where I could tell that there was something more to this than just having a drink for me. Uh, this was back in my early to mid-20s. I was on a trip up to the Upper Peninsula with my family. My family had been vacationing there on the coast of Lake Superior since before I was born. So I had a lot of childhood memories and teenage memories and then young adult memories there. And uh, My sister and I stopped at this little outpost gas station. It was like the last, you know, last resort before we went to the, to the campground and picked up this two-hearted ale six-pack. I didn't know anything about beer, and but I liked the label art of this uh, this trout, uh, the really cool label art of this trout against sort of a, a muted background. And 
um, took it back to the campground and had this sensory experience that I described in that paragraph. And one of my favorite parts of craft beer in general is the way that our senses are about more than just sensory input. They're about, you know, interaction with our memories and our emotions and uh, places we've been and people we've been with. And so being able to write this article 15 years almost after that first time that I had to Hardedale and talk to John Mallett and Larry Bell at Bell's and um, really be able to dive in and tell the story behind this was definitely special for me. I, I bet I can, you know, kind of equate it to the the feeling that someone might have if they meet their favorite director or they they meet, <laughs> you know, their they're like a, their their favorite actor, where you know that person might not quite get why that person's so jazzed to meet them, because you can't really, I mean, most of us can't really put it into words. It's there's something that you uh, that that person has done that's made an effect on on your life and and it brings great memories up. So I, I bet that was very fulfilling. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I love about beer specifically is, you know, the fact that it's so perishable, you know, it goes, it doesn't go bad, but it, it starts to lose its freshness and its ideal flavor after just a few months. And so you've got this amazing piece of science and art coming together, but it's just a moment in time, you know, you've got to have it right at that moment or it disappears. And so these people are putting their life's learning and their their passion and all this stuff into creating something that's here today, and then it's got to be enjoyed. It can't just be held onto and uh, you know tucked away somewhere for later. You got to have it right now. There is something about seeing so many photos and and videos of of beer and people drinking beer that is of the moment, but it, in so many ways it can be so just literally and in other ways two-dimensional compared to strong writing about it, strong writing about the experience. Can you talk a little bit about how you've come into your own and the journey that you've been on to really try to capture that that uh, lightning in a bottle, that, that feeling that you have when you drink beer as a writer? How did you get to where you are when it comes to uh, honing that craft? Yeah, for sure. So I've been writing for far longer than I've been writing about beer, longer than I've been drinking it. I've started doing creative writing, you know, poetry and short stories and things like that back in middle school when I was 10 or 11 years old. And, uh, you know, then my teenage years writing just incredibly maudlin, heartbroken uh, poems that were uh, absolutely terrible, but, you know, felt like the the emotion of the universe was packed into them when I was writing them. And the idea of the image and the moment and the emotion uh, being expressed through words like that has always been what's driven anything that I've written. So when I started writing about craft beer, which started doing professionally about five years ago, it was very natural to me and very intentional that I wanted to be able to capture images and wanted to be able to make beer about more than just beer. I think of all of the alcoholic beverages, beer sometimes has this attitude around it of being too cool for school and we're not going to do any of that like fussy talk like wine does and we're not going to uh, you know, use flowery language and all that. And certainly we want to avoid excessively purple prose and all that. But I feel like 
beer has just as much of a place in that conversation as wine or bourbon or scotch or any other um, any other artisan food or drink does. And so I wanted, as soon as I started writing about beer, to be able to capture images, capture moments, write very image-focused pieces where people can really see where they are or see where I was when I was writing this and be able to loosen up a little bit of that a little bit of that rigidity that we have around the beer drinking experience mm. and be able to lean in more to the fact that, yeah, maybe this does make me feel something or make me remember something or make me nostalgic. And that's okay. You know, mm. the, the fact that it creates a, an image in your mind, that's something to lean into, not something where you need to kind of be resistant to that. So that's something that I've always wanted to be a part of my writing. And, you know, in recent years, I've been able to write more of those pieces that have a little bit of that, license to um to create those scenes i don't know about you but there are times when i've you know tried to write something and it's never as poignant as a conversation i've had with someone when we're both on our third beer which probably <laughs> you know affects my uh my quality control but there's something about the oral tradition of sitting at a bar together with someone and hearing their story or even hearing, you know, it doesn't even have to be about beer, but it's, it's, it's around beer. When you're putting together, the, you know, the work that you do, how much of it is ever from conversations that you've had over beer? And, and is there a bridge between the, that oral, oral experience and, and, and the writing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think any any beer drinker knows that, of course, we get more brilliant as we drink more beer. Mm, I mean, yes, that's, that's yeah. That's anybody on a bar stool can can testify to that. You're never more eloquent than you are uh, after your second or third beer. No, but I think that's definitely true. I mean, I've had plenty of those late night conversations where uh, you know you're you're several beers in, and whatever the topic is that's come up, you know you've you've hit that sweet spot where you're loosened up a little bit, but you're um, you're still fully in control of your thoughts and and having just that that beautiful conversation. My sister visited a couple weeks back and due to COVID, I hadn't seen her in a couple of years. It was the first time we'd gotten to see each other since goodness, 2019. Wow. Um, and you know, we sat on the back patio for hours and hours, far later than this old man is is used to staying up anymore. And uh, you know, opening new bottles of beer and just honestly talking about childhood you know just talking about like weird things that happen and places we live and stuff we hadn't been able to go over in a long time and so alcohol when handled responsibly has the ability to help us loosen up in those moments and have those kind of heart-to-heart -heart, vulnerable conversations with people we care about and I think that writing about alcohol whether it's beer or something else can do that in reverse and can kind of create those create images of those moments that we can reference back to and try to recreate. Mm. Um, so you're kind of working in the opposite direction and saying, yeah, like you're like you're talking about, you know, those late night conversations that are great after a few beers. Well, let me create some images here. And then maybe that spurs those kind of conversations edited to the point that it's readable, you know, because right, right. I, I, the best part about 
you know, having a, a buzz on when you're when you're discussing something is that the editor has left the the room, left the building. <laughs> you know, she's not to be found. But you do need to harness that back, otherwise it sounds um, you're just very self-serving. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the advantages that you also have is that you interact with people a lot when it comes to giving beer presentations and beer, you know, doing some beer education, that kind of thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that side of your career? And and I know that we've talked before and that part of it might have been impacted, your ability has been impacted by your upbringing. And you had talked a little bit about that. So can you tell me about your the current state of what you do when it comes to interacting with people live and, and what happened in your upbringing that, that influenced it? Yeah, for sure. So prior to the pandemic, I was splitting my time pretty evenly between writing professionally about beer and other food and drink and then leading beer-focused events. So tastings, pairings, educational talks, that sort of thing. And one of the things I really loved about that face-to-face interaction with people was getting people of different backgrounds and different uh, different palates, different sensory experiences together to taste the same thing. And when you do that, you learn as much as you teach when you're the presenter. I feel like if you go into it with the right mindset, the people that you're leading this event for can actually reveal things to you about this beer that uh, you hadn't even been aware of because we have all had profoundly different experiences in our lives, whether they are uh, places we've grown up, religions or cultures that we've been a part of, even like racial and ethnic backgrounds, whether we've lived in a city or a rural area, all of those different aspects of our background and our stories influences our sensory vocabulary, the aromas and flavors that we have a context for, the images and emotional memories that we have uh, connected to those different flavors and aromas. And so when you get people together in a room uh, that all have different experiences experiences like that and taste the same thing, then suddenly you get to kind of have this exchange of experiences and exchange of stories and exchanges of, of backgrounds, even when it's just an IPA that tastes like grapefruit and pine. You know, there, there's so much more there that can, that you can tease out of that if you're able to create a moment for people to feel safe to do that. My own particular background, I grew up primarily in the Midwest. My dad was a traveling preacher. I had this kind of weird fundamentalist Christian upbringing, and we, we traveled all around while he was preaching, and um, I was in the outdoors a great deal. And After leaving the faith as an adult, not spending as much time in rural areas, kind of taking on some interests that had me more in in cities and things like that, and and then getting married to a woman who's from Chicago, started having conversations, her and I, after uh, we got married, where we were tasting beers together and realizing that the sensory notes that we were sharing were often things that the other person had no context for, no experience with. You know, I was sharing rural agrarian language like barnyard and horse blanket and hay and black walnut skins and like all these different like super specific things that were just part of the fabric, like the sensory fabric of my childhood. And it had never crossed my mind that those were very specific to my own experience. 
Uh, my wife is of Mexican heritage and grew up in South Chicago. So she was referencing flavors and spices and things that I was not familiar with. And she had no context whatsoever for what a horse blanket smelled like. So we started having these really interesting conversations. There's not one sensory vocabulary. There isn't like a single catalog that all of us are just born knowing and understanding. There are certain things that most of us are going to be familiar with. Probably most people in the United States know what a strawberry smells like. But then there's this whole range of things that are pretty specific to our background. So realizing that and kind of trying to lean into that a little bit in the tasting experience, in the event setting, and kind of encouraging people to share whatever they're thinking, even if they don't think it's the right answer, because it's not in this clearly coded um, vocabulary that we've established for beer, that can create some really interesting personal exchanges and cultural exchanges between people. I had a conversation with uh, Dr. J from the Brewers Association who mm-hmm. runs Crafted for All. Talked to her for my podcast and she was talking about this as a, a great opportunity to increase diversity and equity and inclusion within craft beer of using the tasting experience specifically to remove barriers and letting people share the sensory notes that they have that might be that that another person might not be familiar with at all and then following up with that to say okay how do you have that vocabulary where did that come from tell me about experiences that you had that gave you an awareness of that sensory note and using that as sort of a a place of cultural exchange and a place of vulnerability and uh, a way to bring people together around that tasting experience. And I think that the sensory experience with tasting food and drink has a unique ability to kind of bridge between our physical reality and our deeper identity, you know, our emotional experience and our, our, our personal identity like that. I mean, I I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of religions have some sort of ritual or uh, regular experience that is encouraged that is around food and drink, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that's communion in the the Christian tradition or, or, you know, something else. Like there are a lot of religions that I think recognize that 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 is a point of that's sort of like a, a a place. My sister, I was talking about this with my sister recently, and she said, described it as the veil being thin at those places. Like mm-hmm. when we, when we're eating and drinking, like the, the space between our deeper identity and uh, our physical reality. And then the place between each of us as individuals is kind of thinned and made more transparent or translucent when we are sharing food and drink together. And that the way that that sensory experience works. And so I think that that can definitely be a very powerful way that we can consciously bring people together around craft beer. One of the other elements that I like about your writing is that you really get to know the people behind the beer. It's not just about flavor. Could you read from your article uh, from Good Beer Hunting called Tending the Fires, Carillon Brewing Company of Dayton, Ohio? Yeah, for sure. So this is actually the opening of that article, the first two paragraphs. It's snowing gently in the gray morning light as Kyle Spears steps out the front door of Carillon Brewing Company. There's an ax slung over his shoulder because no beer is brewed at Carillon without fire, and there's no fire unless Spears or fellow brewer Dan Laro splits the wood for it. 
Their brew days began around dawn with the thunk of the blade meeting the chopping block and the clatter of local ash, walnut, or osage wood falling asunder. Dan and I have come to the realization over the years that we're actually fire builders, and we just happen to brew beer in between tending fires, jokes Spears, Carolan's head brewer, as he piles wood onto the embers beneath the hot liquor tank to heat the day's strike water. We're the only brewers I know who carry axes to work. I'm getting a lot of sensory input just hearing you read about it. I can hear the chunk in my mind's in my mind's ear of of what goes on when you when you're you know getting a fire ready. I'm feeling the heat, you know, all of this stuff and smelling the wood smoke. So, uh, can you tell me tell us a little bit more about this story? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that. First of all, thank you, because that's exactly what I want to achieve there, you know, is those those sort of sensory images coming to your mind. But there's so much conversation that we're getting more acceptance around the idea of the sensory experience tying backward to memory. But I think it's also very important in tying forward in imagination. So if somebody has never been to this brewery that I'm writing about, I can't appeal to their memory necessarily because they don't have a memory of being there. Mm but I can try to appeal to imagination so that they can put those pieces together and tie from different experiences they've had to create this kind of new image. Carillon Brewing Company is a fantastic place to work with for this kind of thing because it is so drenched in sensory experiences. All of the beer is brewed over open wood fires. um, So you've got the heat of the fire, you've got the smell of the smoke, you've got the glow of the coals, you've got the sound of that, you know, crackling, roaring fire underneath the, uh, the, the hot liquor tank and the boil kettle. You've got all these different things going on. It's this beautiful brick and wood space. Uh, it's sort of dimly lit, feels like you're back in a different era. The brewery is trying to recreate the brewing techniques and equipment of 1850 here in uh, Dayton, Ohio. Um, So they are trained historians and they did a lot of research to recreate this brewery from that time period. And they brew all the beer, how the beer was brewed in 1850. So there's, there's really no modern shortcuts except for an electric pump to get the water up to the, you know, the hot, Mm. uh, hot liquor tank. So uh, it was very important to me writing that article that you get those sensory components in place because while their beer is delicious, it's been winning some awards in the last year in contests where the judges have no idea that it's historical beer. So there's no asterisk next to the fact that they are brewing historically. Uh, the beer itself is good. At the same time, I do think that tasting the beer there at the brewery and, and seeing that equipment right there and seeing the brewers dressed in their period correct clothing from 1850 affects something about the sensory experience. It changes something about what you're tasting in your glass, even though the beer is good on its own. And I I feel like going back to what we mentioned early on about how sometimes craft beer can kind of have this uh, skittishness around leaning into the emotional or holistic components of drinking and and tasting. I think that uh, sometimes the idea that some sort of romance around the tasting experience is changing what you're tasting is code for saying that, oh, this wouldn't actually be good on its own. You need this other stuff in order to make it taste good. You know, and uh, I don't, I don't want any of that around me. All that matters is what's in the glass. I'll hear that a lot of times on Twitter when, Mm. you know, if I put something out about 
loving to label art on a bottle or a can, I will often get a comment of like, it doesn't matter. All that matters is what's in the glass. Mm. It's like, well, no, like mm. you're wrong. Like if you're telling me that you're not affected by that stuff, then you're naive. But I also think you're really missing out because uh, yeah, the beer needs to be good on its own, but taking in the entire scene around you and leaning into the fact that that is influencing your experience of taking that sip from the beer, why would you want to deprive yourself of that? That's a really beautiful experience. And so when I'm writing an article about a place like Carillon, it's very important to me to be able to recreate those images so that even though the person's not tasting that beer while they're reading it, even though they've never been to the brewery, they're able to put all those pieces together in their mind, enjoy it in that light, and then also hopefully say, wow, I want to go there and actually have that experience. Are there any brewers or other folks that you've spoken to in your, in your, um, for your articles that have stood out as being either larger than life or almost a personification of the beer that they actually make? I think there have been quite a few. I mean, at this point, I'm able to largely choose my own articles. You know, I'm pitching what I want to write about. And so that's generally a place that I have a connection to or a person that I really respect. But I think a few that stand out to me uh, are two breweries that sort of have a similar ethos, uh, Scratch Brewing in Illinois and Wolves and People in Oregon. So talking to um, Marika Josephson at Scratch, uh, and uh, Aaron Clyden, they're a scratch, and then talking to Christian De Benedetti out at Wolves and People. They have this sort of quiet composure to them. All three of those individuals are living pretty close to the land, and that is reflected in their beers. You know, they're foraging for a lot of their ingredients or uh, growing or working with local growers for these sort of esoteric ingredients that you don't normally see in beer. They are very much of the do-it-yourself mindset where they are getting out there and actually, you know, picking the the flowers or the berries or the, the roots or whatever it is that they're going to use in this very unusual finished beer. And in having conversations with them, there is definitely a difference in tone. Not that not that the normal craft brewer, quote unquote normal, who's working out of your expected uh, brewery setting in a in a mm. city or something yeah. and brewing your standard range of beers. Not that they are brash or that they are in some ways um, unemotional, but there is definitely a a recognition when I'm talking to Marika or Aaron or Christian where they are people of the land. They are coming from a sort of agrarian harmony with the the natural world around them and this sort of quiet confidence that comes with that. And uh, I've definitely found that to be really inspiring when talking with them. Now, you've done quite a bit of travel to write about beer. I'm interested in knowing a little bit about uh, how that's been impacted lately. But I was wondering if you could read from another piece. Um, This is another one that you wrote for Pellicle. And this is about an experience you had in Belgium. It's from your article, Bruges, Beer and Drowning Post-Election Dread. So this, uh, you might have to set the scene a little bit, uh, or you can set it after you read it. But, you know, when we talk about post-election, we might want to clarify that. (laughs) Yeah, I'll go ahead and read this, and then I'll, I'll give a little context. 
When you step out of one of the legendary beer bars of Bruges, such as Café Rose Red or Tiberge Berchi, well after midnight and walk home on the cobblestone streets, crossing bridges over canals that may or may not have a swan or two gliding along them silently, and you don't see another living soul your entire walk. It feels like this city exists only for you. It was spun from the fibers of some alcohol-soaked vision you had on the burnished wood of the evening's final bar top, and in the morning, it will be gone. So that particular article, the trip that that was referencing was in 2016. My wife and I were in Belgium in the city of Bruges over the election uh, when Trump was elected. And we, like most other Americans, assumed that we knew how the election was going to go before we left the country and we had you know, voted in advance. And so we were operating with just a little bit of amusement around like, oh goodness, this theater is almost over and then things will go somewhat back to normal. And waking up that next morning um, after Trump had been elected was really, really disorienting. And suddenly being in a foreign place felt very, very different mm -hmm. than it had just the day before. And uh, so in this article for Pellicle, this came out last year, the week before the 2020 election, looking it was looking at the beauty of this timeless city that you know has there's buildings there where you can drink beer in a cellar from the 13th century or something contrasted against just the the rapid pace of what felt like the world going to shit in 2016 mm -hmm. and the how it how it felt different being an american from one day to the next in this place and it, I wrote this last summer when it felt like we were going to be reliving this all over again, just not able to leave the country like we had been in 2016. Sure. And trying to capture both the beauty of that experience with the very real dread and the very real like sense that the world was just sinking um, at the same time was... A difficult thing to do and it's not a very long article this is only i think about 11 or 1200 words and just trying to give i i had considered going longer and talked with my editor and they were like you know i think this is more kind of a snapshot thing and uh give some some clear and coherent images and then just share the political background of what was going on at the time and so that was what i tried to do what i like about you know just setting the tone that way was uh, really again focusing on that that sense of place and 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 getting the, the geography in there and getting the, <laughs> getting this cityscape in there was was elegant. Thank you. You are a big fan of not just beer but chocolate. Yes. Uh, I I'm going to quote you now in the intro to your podcast Beer to Barstool. You say it's a podcast that uses craft beer and bean to bar chocolate as lenses for exploring the world of flavor and the way flavor interacts with our memories, emotions, imaginations, even our identities to teach us more about who we are. Now, how can one podcast do all that? <laughs> well, I don't know if it does. I mean, the jury's still out on that, but certainly what I attempt to do in my episodes. Uh, no, I mean, it's it's doing exactly what we've been talking about this entire time of the what, the power that the eating and drinking experience has and the tasting experience, the sensory experience has to tap into all these other aspects of our lives. And uh, for me, I've 
channeled that primarily into beer and bean to bar chocolate, which is just basically craft chocolate, ethically sourced craft chocolate. Uh, channeled that into those two things and really dove into them, but it could it could be wine or bourbon or coffee or anything else for somebody. But using those two things, as I say there, as lenses for talking about the way that that flavor and sensory experiences are about so much more than just having a meal or having a beer. They're about all these different aspects of who we are kind of overlapping and and dialoguing with each other and with other people. So uh, we use, we, we talk about beer and chocolate collaborations and pairings and things like that. But the, the spiritual heart of the show is using these two very complex artisan food and drinks to be able to kind of pick apart the way that the tasting experience interacts with our deeper selves. I was listening to a recent episode where you were speaking with an historian who was discussing witchcraft and its connection with beer or supposed connection with beer. It's a lot more detailed uh, than than my glossing over it. Can you tell me a little bit about a guest or an episode where you really did feel like you were making that connection where you were exploring different emotions or identities crossing over this experience of eating chocolate and drinking beer? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mentioned that conversation with Dr. J, and I think that was a really explicit conversation around that, of the fact that uh, people of very different backgrounds can consciously and intentionally learn from each other through the tasting experience. So that was one that I thought was um, really getting to the heart of what I wanted the podcast to be about. Can you tell me a little bit about Dr. J for, for the, for the um, listeners who, who don't know her? Yeah, for sure. Dr. J is uh, Dr. J. Nicole Jackson Beckham. She is a professor. Uh, I cannot remember what specifically what her PhD is in, um, but she is a ambassador for the Brewers Association looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion. And she also is the founder and principal behind a nonprofit called Crafted for All uh, that looks at diversity, equity, and inclusion within the craft beverage sphere. So her professional life revolves around getting more people of different backgrounds into craft beverage and from the other side, making those craft beverage industries more welcoming and accepting and inviting to people of different backgrounds beyond just, you know, straight white males. Uh, so um, that is her entire professional focus. And so getting her onto the podcast to be able to talk about that in the context of the sensory experience was really a privilege. Yeah, she has a, a doctor of philosophy, communication and cultural studies, uh, according to LinkedIn. So perfect. That's the yeah. uh, th that's my source. Take it or leave it. And uh, I recently then had a conversation with a chocolate educator from Sweden uh, named Sana Forsland, and she leads chocolate tastings and things like that. And one of her major focuses within that is travel through chocolate. So she talks about the ability of the sensory experience uh, to help us imagine and visit other places in the world without leaving home. So she does that both from a memory standpoint of being able to uh, visit places that she has been in her actual life, but then also traveling through imagination. And she really leans into the idea in her tastings with uh, visitors and guests of getting them to 
allow their senses to help them um, picture other places and learn more about a location through that sensory experience. So even if that means doing a little bit of research in advance and kind of getting some pictures or images of a, uh, let's say a particular origin for the cacao for a chocolate bar, reading up on it a little bit, and then doing almost meditation and really kind of slowing yourself down and closing your eyes and spending longer than you would normally spend on the tasting experience to try to envision that place. She sees a lot of power in that. So we had a conversation about that recently that I think was um, something that most people I don't think would ever think about. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Episode 26, check it out, put your headphones on, get your favorite uh, bean to bar chocolate in hand and, and chill out. Sounds Sounds amazing. Sounds like absolutely the escape that I'm looking for. I'm just going to have to time it right after my daughter goes to bed. <laughs> I, just I understand. Go that, yeah. sailing, you know? There you go. What you're working on now, what can folks look forward to in the future? Do you have any other interactive um, experiences that folks can take advantage of? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, of course, you know, I'm still working on the podcast every uh, first and third Tuesday of the month. I've got a new episode of Bean to Bar Stool coming out, so you can check out that. I will be taking my first trip since the pandemic started in a few weeks, uh, early November. I'm going to be heading to Denver to report a couple of really interesting stories that I'm excited about um, that really get to kind of the heart of some of the stuff we're talking about right now. So I won't spoil those, but okay. I'm excited to head out there and um, talk with some brewers I really respect and and try to tell their story and get back out in the world again a little bit um, after being here at home for a year and a half. So definitely excited about doing that. And uh, then I'm also leading some virtual events. It's not quite the same as being in a room with people, but Got a, an event coming up in October. We'll be tasting through some Belgian quads with a large group over Zoom. And uh, it's a really fun way to get people from totally different places in the world together in one place to taste beer together. So uh, sort of the there are pros and cons to uh, the virtual life and to what uh, the changes that COVID is, has brought. And I definitely miss getting to do this with people, but doing these virtual events has been a lot of fun. That, that'll already be closed, but I will be doing more of those episodes. Um, you can find, or I'm sorry, more of those events, and you can find links and information to those events on my website, davidnilsonbeer.com. I thank you so much for your time and your insight and your writing. And I'll thank you so much for having me on, Will. I really appreciate you giving the attention to my writing that you have. It Starts With Beer is part of the Hopped Up Network. You can listen to other beer podcasts, including Beer and Nonsense, the best, best friends podcast in the world, and of course, Connecticut's own Beer Man podcast. Just go to hoppedupnetwork.com. It Starts With Beer is narrated and produced by me, Will Sis, please leave a high star review wherever you're listening to this podcast and tell somebody about it. The theme music was performed by me and drummer George Mastrianis. Background music is courtesy of Pixabay. Until next time, sip well.